This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. What happens when regular people work together to create massive, meaningful change on a global scale? Welcome to the Carbon Almanac Collective, a podcast where the volunteers who created the Carbon Almanac share the insights and aha moments they had while collaborating on this landmark project to help fight the climate crisis. I'm your host, Jennifer Myers Chua, and it's not too late to join in on the conversation. I am Linda Westenberg. I'm from the Netherlands, and I took on the role of assistant managing editor, which basically means that I was responsible for keeping all of the different parts moving, making sure each draft of an article flowed through the editing process and ended up being ready to sign over to our design team. Uh, My name is Lynn Richards. I'm from Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my role on the Almanac was working on the book itself as a researcher contributor, and then also working with the production team in the last two months to working with specifically the designers to place quotes and facts and make sure that we've got all that information fitting into the pages the way that worked best for the design team. My name's Teresa Reinalda. I'm from New York originally, but now living in a suburb of Chicago called Mount Prospect. I am an artist and designer, so I came to the Almanac, with the idea that I might work on layout and design and or infographics and graphics, but I leaned in heavy to the layout and design and stayed there for the duration. I'd love to know what brought you to the Carbon Almanac. Why did you join this project in the first place? As an artist, I'm always kind of going deeper into what things feel like, what they the, the essence of a thing, the essence of a place, the essence of the people who were there. And I'm very introverted, but what's called a gregarious introvert. <laughs> so I, I have a lot of deep thoughts and feelings about things, but I'm not necessarily aligned with anything about carbon or, or the planet in, in a big way. But my art takes me to places deeper and softer. I listen to Seth. I've been listening to him on YouTube videos and in interviews on people's podcasts, and I read his blog. So I found out about the Carbon Almanac through his blog, and I applied for it, if you will. And I thought, wow, I can make a difference with my talents or lack thereof. That's wonderful. So I was excited and flattered to be invited, honestly. And just to be with like-minded people, like-minded creative people from around the world. So after COVID, especially the isolation of that, and then to be linked with people around the world to do something great, something meaningful, that was just, that was everything to me. That just filled me with happiness. For me, this felt like a way to really contribute to climate change in a more impactful way, as opposed to the individual actions I take, where I really have the feeling that they don't amount to much, like what you said, the the steel straws or uh, separating my garbage, recycling, stuff like that. It just 
feels like a, a drop in a big ocean. So it's not really causing any change. So I, I thought I could help. I just didn't know how until I joined. And then I saw this need for like process and project management. So that's what I jumped into. Yeah. And it's it's been awesome just to connect with all of these people from all over the globe. I think we're over 90 countries right now. And that I think that's amazing. All of us have this different backgrounds, different cultures. Um, we're a very diverse group, but we all have this same goal. We all want to create this impact through this project we're, that we're doing. And we all, we all have hope that change is possible. Yeah, I, I love it. I think this is the project of my life, actually. Hmm. And Lynn, do you have hope? Is that why you're here? I have a little less hope than a lot of people on the project, I think, because I'm older than most people on the project, truthfully. And if I were younger, I would have to have more hope, I think. I really understand that. But uh, my daughter and I, who is more like the age of most people on the project, we've been talking for decades about what we could do, where we could do it, and and also where we would retreat to <laughs> when we needed to. I mean, I've just geared my life that way for so long. And so I really wanted to be a part of this project. I hadn't seen, I read Seth's blog as long as it's been around, but I hadn't seen the invitation to apply to help the morning that it came out. And a friend wrote me right after it came out, apparently, and asked me to please do it. And this is a friend I had turned on to Seth's blog years ago, so I kind of felt like I had to. But also, you know, I thought about it for a minute. I was very deeply in the middle of a book that I'm working on, and I was on a really good roll. And I thought, well, okay, I'll give it eight to 12 hours a week, and I can I can do that. And this is the most important cause to me, and I'm happy to make a contribution. And then it became my life, and I'm still trying to remember what I was doing on my book. And, you know, it was a, a 50, 60 hour a week process, if not more. I mean, just round the clock and so many people doing that as well around the world. And so, you know, you never felt like you, you were the one making the sacrifice because everybody was. The level of commitment, the level of passion, the graciousness, all of that was just so inviting and so wonderful. But I, I was really struck all the way through, Jennifer, by the hopefulness of everybody compared to me. <laughs> and so um, my, the, the, my stumbling block to hope is that I believe we have to give up a lot in order to save ourselves. And I don't see people wanting to give up a lot or being willing to do that. I see people wanting to make technological or to have other people find for them technological changes that so we can keep everything as it is. And that's not going to save us. We are our only salvation, and it means sacrifice and change. And I think we'll find very quickly if we did that, that what we think are sacrifices are actually gifts to other things and other ways of being. And I've certainly found that in my own life due to the Almanac, uh, due to working on this project and all the research I did on it. And I, um, I have a blog and I research and write pieces on things that the Almanac inspired me to go deeper on and to learn more about. And that too is continuing to cause me to change so many things in my own life. And I already felt like I was pretty aware. I believe a hundred percent in what everybody here has said and what Seth always says that this is 
got to be about systemic change. But I believe our passion and our motivation to really push systemic change will come from individual change. And they're not separate. They're completely, they feed each other. You know, when I'm, when I'm doing that, I do feel a little more hopeful. Yeah, I agree that it's, people have to be willing to change a lot. I'm just, I'm hopeful that there's some opening through which they will hear the call. Even if they're not willing to be vulnerable right now, something will turn on that switch that says, okay, I'm willing to not know everything on this subject. I'm willing to not dig my heels in. Everything seems to be for the children. And I think people are less apt to do it for today. And I think if we can open up that door, somehow, will the almanac do it? Will conversations around the almanac do it? More likely, I think. You know, will mm-hmm. maybe listening to a podcast do it? But I'm, I'm hopeful that at least someone will see vulnerability maybe in someone else and say, okay, they can go there. Maybe I can go there. I, I think we lead each other through our actions day to day. I, I certainly feel that that's how I learn and how I'm inspired by other people and their willingness to grow. My hope comes from the fact that we do see also younger generations getting involved and starting movements. So if they are able to understand the danger that we're in, that we're not going to have the planet as it is right now in a couple of decades, then surely other generations should be able to to see that, to follow that viewpoint and to take action themselves. It's like uh, you need one one sheep to go over the bridge and then the rest will follow. So I, th- I think that principle applies here as well. It doesn't have to be a lot of people at once. It just, there have to be leaders who are willing to, to take that step and then show people the way because then people are willi- willing to follow if they see that, that that's the path that we need to take. And what about if you're sitting at home right now and you are concerned about climate change or or the climate crisis and you don't see an opportunity in your life to be a leader, to be the kind of leader that we need? How do you think that this work that we're doing on this project is going to benefit those people? Like, Do you think it's going to motivate people to step up and lead? Part of the objective, I think, of the Almanac is to give people the information to have conversations. And if you're sitting at home and you don't know where to start and you don't feel like you know enough, the beauty of the Almanac is pick it up and open it and go to any page. And there's going to be something that interests you. Linda started with leaf blowers. And, you know, you can also go as deep as as um, when was the last time we had a carbon crisis on this planet? I mean, you, the whole spectrum is in the Almanac and learn something. Do it at a, a simple level or do it at a deep level. Go read more from what you learn from the Almanac if you want to. But you don't even have to do that. Learn something and go talk to your family members about it. Go talk to the people at work about it. Start being in the conversation. And you're, you're just not going to believe what it opens up for you. A profound thing for me has been clothing. I had no idea how horrific 
the impact on the planet and on human beings, our clothing industries, our fashion industries are, and how much impact we have on people and the environment with what we choose to wear and how much we buy and how much we dispose of it. And there's a picture that was on our site as we all work together, mountains of never worn clothing in the Atacama Desert, a gorgeous, precious place on the planet. And that sent me off to learn more about that because I, I just, I was gobsmacked. I just couldn't believe it. And now that's something I, I want to talk to everybody about. Do you know yeah. this? What do you know about it? You know, I mean, what what should we change? How can we do this differently? How do we make an impact at a systemic level on the industries, on the regulations, but also on women's buying practices? You know, I mean, women aren't the only culprits here, but we talk about fashion amongst ourselves. We talk about clothes. Why are we talking about clothes, first of all, but uh, when there's a climate crisis? But <laughs> but if we're going to talk about clothes, let's talk about their contribution and who suffers. Start a conversation. And, and the almanac is a fantastic spur to that. I'm Canadian, and several Canadian brands were involved in the Rana factory collapse in Bangladesh Ooh, a couple of years ago. Oh. And there was some outrage here but not enough in my opinion. And I'm still shocked when I see friends of mine who I regularly communicate this kind of information with still buying from those companies. And purchasing power is really important. And I'm glad that we have touched a little bit on it in the Almanac, but I know that there's going to be a specific guide as well for talking to even our children about it and influencing them as they grow older. Linda, what about leadership? If you think someone wants to become a leader in this space and they feel powerless, what do you think they can do? Well, I think we've shown uh, as contributors of the Carbon Almanac that anyone can be a leader. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, talking for myself, I was that person sitting at home not knowing what to do. And then this came along and I just, I jumped at it. There are more initiatives like this, whether it's local or global, you just have to look for them. And there's always something you can do within your own community or within your own town or within your own country, even if you're like a small country that I'm from. So I I think it's easy to step up as a leader, actually. It's just the willingness to do that and taking that step because it, yeah, it, it can seem daunting and it's safe to say, I don't know what to do. I'm just staying on my couch. But if you really want change to happen, it's, it starts with you. Well, the term leader, I I don't align with that. I don't feel like a leader in any way. I don't. I, I, I get very excited about things and very passionate about things. And I'll spread the word amongst my little, little world. But I, I have trouble saying, Hey, everyone over here. I, I just, I have a different personality type. And so I've been trying and with working on the Almanac's help to just let my vulnerable self go out there and say whatever silly thing I think to say and just do what I think to do. And I think if we can all just be vulnerable together, we can do anything. Teresa, I felt like you led 
beautifully with your designs. You led from your strengths, your strengths, your layouts and your designs, and they were beautiful. And there were so many times that I was in an online conversation with you and Seth about what to do on the page. And, you know, I was just there because of the sparklers at that point, or maybe I had written the article, but you were very much a leader from where you feel your expertise and where you, where your strengths are. So I felt like you led from that all the way through. Linda, I would like to ask you something. So you live in a place that has the potential to be really affected. Absolutely. By the climate crisis. And I'm wondering Because I don't have the opportunity that you have to be in that environment and understand what's going around in the mentality of people around you, can you talk a little bit about what it looks like in the Netherlands? What are people talking about? What are people thinking about? Is this top of mind? I feel it's not top of mind enough. I mean, we Dutch are known for our water management. Mm -hmm. And so we think we can deal with it. We We can handle it. But the, if the sea levels rise quickly or beyond a certain point, we're just going to be underwater. I mean, that's, that's a fact. We cannot build dikes high enough to protect our country from that. And to me, it feels that discussion is not taking place enough. Even though our king is really into water management, mm-hmm. and you'd, you'd think that would be a topic that is important and talked about a lot. It isn't. And I'm, I'm not sure why. It feels like maybe it's fear that's guiding it. People are afraid to talk about it because then it becomes real. And now they can say, no, we have, we have good water management. Look at what, look at what we've d- done with floods. Look at the, the, the ground that we like stole from the fishes, I like to say. Yeah. So... It doesn't feel urgent to me. It doesn't feel urgent enough in this country. So conversations I'm having, it's not about the water management or about the disaster that's that's waiting for us in our future generations. There is climate change or talk around climate change, but yeah, I'm I'm not sure why there there's not more attention for that specific part. Now, we did send a book to the king, right? Yes, we did. Yeah. (laughs) So fingers crossed. And I guess I'd like to ask the other two of you about the United States of America. Well, I'm I'm from New York originally, but I'm in uh, the Chicagoland area now. My little alarm bells going off for my life are, are louder than ever, but just just trying to starting to eke out into the community and hoping to find my voice to to share what I've learned and share the almanac. It's very green here. It's very clean. It's beautiful. It's quiet and peaceful. It's idyllic. It's <laughs> and, a bubble. Um, it, yes, yeah. it really is. So that's, I'm trying to figure out how I can take steps to, to say, Hey, you don't see this, but when you use Roundup on your lawn, you're doing all this damage. Yeah. Your lawn looks great, but you know, and so the willingness of people to be open to hear, they can't do that. Although it, really looked great when they do. 
that's, that's the kind of the, the threshold I have to figure out how to cross in conversation. Just simple things like that, the leaf blowers and the, the lawnmowers and the chemicals that are, they're on the shelves. They're all over the place. They're sold freely. Like, how do you tell people that you shouldn't use that? That's a tough one for me to figure out. I want to go back, if you don't mind, Jennifer, to your last question, because I live in the desert, and I so I'm the opposite of Linda's situation. But in the United States, very different than Teresa's situation, because everybody here talks about it all the time. The Western United States is pretty obsessed with climate change. We're burning up. Yeah. Where we don't have rain, we don't have we don't have normal seasons anymore. We don't have snow. We have fire. Fire is not constrained to a season now. It's year round. It was freezing last night, and there are five major fires in the state of New Mexico right now, and people evacuating everywhere. You just look out your window and you see dryness. You see trees dying. You see the the habitats for flora and fauna changing dramatically. I have to cut down trees on my property every year. And then I have, I, I try to replace two for one of everything I cut down, but I have to really keep researching and learning, okay, what next tree can I buy that's less susceptible to, to bug? Every restaurant you go to, every bathroom in the restaurant has a request about water usage. Um, we don't put water on the tables at restaurants. Well, who goes to restaurants but anymore? But it, when we did, you know, they don't bring you water. You have to ask for it. So it's a constant thing. And it's it, people are very, very aware and very, very worried. And yet I don't see that leading to systemic pushes for change. Mm -hmm. I see individual change more and more, but I don't see so much of the awareness that you've got to really now take this to the next level, take it to your council, take it to your mayor, take it to your state government, really work to affect national legislation. I don't see that kind of change, but, but boy, it's a constant topic of conversation. But so why are the restaurant owners doing it, right? Are they... Are well, they just concerned from their own? No, because I think people, uh, first of all, Santa Fe is a kind of a rarefied place. You know, people that come here tend to love nature and have gotten their life to a place where they can come. Now, that that's the Anglos. This is a very diverse culture, a lot of Native Americans, a lot of Hispanics, in fact, more than white people. And they have... The Native Americans have more respect for understanding with the land as a generalization. And all of us are trying to be respectful of our place in a multicultural environment. But I think, you know, to answer your question, why would a, why would somebody like a restaurant owner do it? I still think that's an individual level of awareness. We talk about water every day here. Everybody talks about water. We don't have water. We the, I mean, can we have some of yours, Linda? And we'll give you <laughs> we'll give you something else in exchange. You're, you're welcome to it. <laughs> but uh, but um, but that's different than I mean, we we do those things, and still the world's drying out. You know, mm -hmm. so that's not the systemic level change that we were talking about earlier. So it's got to be both. But I mean, you can say to your neighbor here, "Well, it really bothers me that you've still got a guy coming." using a, a diesel leaf blower. 
And that really bothers me. Could uh, could I at least get you to get him to switch to uh, electric? Now, electric's got problems too, but you can say that here and nobody's going to be offended. You know, I, I had a neighbor write to me, a very immediate neighbor, and say, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to be putting solar panels on my roof. They're going to change your view. People do that. But that's still, that's one level that's really important, but there's a, a whole other level that we we need to work at. And I know that a big part of the Almanac is trying to facilitate conversations and trying to get all of those conversations and that communication started. If you had the opportunity and you had a whole carton of books with you, would you be marching up to your political leaders or would you be sending it to an influencer in your community? Or where do you think that you'd want the book to go? I'm soon going to have several cartons of books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I've been trying to think a lot about that. Where do those go? And how do you, you know, where do they make the most effect? And I, th I think kind of like I've been saying all the way along here, I think at two levels, I will give them to family level members and neighbors because I want to engage those conversations more. But then I will have enough to uh, do a lot more than that. And, you know, I want them on the city council. I want to work at both those levels, at the interpersonal personal level and and then at the more governmental and systemic level. Also, Santa Fe is the capital of the state, so I have an opportunity to take those to the um, our capital here is called the Roundhouse and distribute them there and make sure the governor has them and everything else. And people here will be very receptive to that. And then I also, it's just a wonderful theme on the Almanac about doing reverse shoplifting and leaving them yeah. in bookstores. <laughs> That's too great an idea to not do. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'll definitely be doing that. <laughs> Teresa, how about you? Who would you give a copy of the book to? Well, one person I, I don't have in mind, but I think more than go to one political level person because I, I don't, I feel that people either are for or against our political leaders. And that makes, that kind of makes it a moot point in a way. So I think I would more go to friends and connections who have a voice larger than just small conversation. So friends who have podcasts or who have live Facebook events, or our public library, we practically live there. So they would be open, I think, to an event where it would be talked about. And just, you know, smaller clusters of people with more of a voice than just... I, I think just how much I've put the book out there, people are congratulating me for being part of it, the end. So it's not inspiring them to buy it, yeah. to pre-order it. It's not inspiring them to use it. And I don't know if it's what I'm saying or not saying, or if it's just that everything has become so competitive, if you will. So it's like, oh, here's my book. If right. you like me, you'll buy my book. So that you have my book, it, it, it doesn't land the right way, just putting mm -hmm. it out there like that. So I, I really need, I need my, my typical small group energy, <laughs> having the conversation and saying, could you just make this known to the people close to you? And so on. But that's the entire idea behind like the hexagon, 
right? Like if you're influencing five people around you and they're all influencing five people around them, this message can spread. Linda, how about you? Who will you be giving the book to first? The first thing I thought of was Leonardo DiCaprio. And I know that's that's a cliche, but he is someone who uh, has a lot of power to share a message. And I know we're, we're kind of working behind the scenes to get him to partner with us. And I, I would love that because a lot of people listen to him, but also on a smaller scale to, to keep it more realistic for myself. I'm also distributing it to friends and family just to have those conversations with them. And I know that they will read it and be as, as shocked as I was with certain information in there. And then hopefully that will also spread to others. Another place I forgot to mention, Jennifer, is we have a lot of sustainability programs in the um, middle and, and uh, high schools here. And those, it just, you mentioned earlier about influencing children about fashion, but just influencing children about everything is so important to the future for climate. I think schools are a really important place to go with it also. And one of the things about the Almanac is that we've spoken a lot about how we're automatically kind of the kind of people that are looking at this and saying, how can I do this on an individualistic level? How can I recycling comes up all of the time in these conversations or, you know, we hear about the the paper straws. But I think what we've all discovered together as a collective is that it's really about systematic change and creating systematic change. And it's about not necessarily our straws, although I am a stainless steel straw drinker at this point now going forward, period. But it really is about collective action and systems and all that kind of stuff. Sure. And understanding like every step that goes into the making of the things, even alternatives, mm -hmm. the making of those things, the making of the steel straw. So what does it take to make a steel straw? Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I, I'm always try, trying to dive into the core of the alternative or what we've got right now. So is it maybe just to be open and to be vulnerable and willing to say, I don't know and talk to each other about it and every yeah. aspect of it, not just don't do this and don't do that, but what does it take to do it differently? Is there anything that you can think of when you were young maybe a child, maybe a teenager, but when you were younger, I'm wondering if there was ever someone that taught you something about our connection to the earth or environmentalism or anything along those lines that has come up for you now that you're working in this space and you're reading this material. Are you having any memories resurface about your connection to environmentalism when you were younger? Oh, absolutely. To me, with me, it started with my father reading to me the Lorax from Dr. Seuss. That's the first time I uh, started to understand what people are doing to the earth. And I remember I cried the first time I heard that story. And then I just wanted my dad to tell me that story every night before I went to bed. And that's... That's been in in my life like a like a like a thread in my life. That's that story from from Doctor Seuss, the Lorax. Mm. That's what ultimately brought me here in in the Carbon Almanac. Actually, the only connection I can think of is that I 
I always loved rocks and stone. So I would, and I, I actually would gather bugs, get them to communicate with each other and watch them, ants in particular. And I loved watching them and how they behaved and how they took care of everything amongst themselves. But I grew up in an apartment complex in New York. And then we moved to what I called, you know, I, I thought we were moving to the farm. And so when we moved here, the idea was to see the open sky for the first time in my life, be around an open sky all the time and be closer to nature. Younger Lynn goes way back. I was a hippie and it was all about that. You know, yeah. Whole Earth News and Foxfire and and Mother Jones and everything else. And my and and I also went to school in Berkeley. There really wasn't anything that wasn't connected to trying to get back to nature. And I did at 22 buy a little farm. It was five acres, but and had my baby there right then. And, you know, it was just, it was everything about that. And so it's been the thing. And the funny thing is, my daughter, I did not have, she was so young, I didn't have this conversation with her at all yet. But she used to go stand at the, long before paper or plastic was a question, she would go stand at the end of the cashier's aisles while I shopped in the grocery store, this little cute little girl asking everybody, don't you want paper instead of plastic? And, <laughs> and you know, what could they say? And so she's handing them paper bags from the end of the aisle and the cashiers thought she was so cute. They let her do it. But I guess it must, I must have been somehow communicating an early theme to her. And she has been as focused on that all her life too. So it's just, it's so embedded as a theme for me and for us that I can't separate myself from it. I'd love to know what everybody is going to take forward from this project. So into the rest of your life, into your social circles, into the work that you're doing, is there something that you're taking forward from your experience here in the Carbon Almanac into the world when it comes to you know mobilizing to create change? As involved as I know all three of us were, I, I can't imagine that any of us can put it down. Yeah. yeah. And as Linda said, there's a million opportunities to do what we did with the Almanac. Those are there for our help. But as a researcher writer, I know that I, I'm researching and writing much, much more on it now for my blog. And also it's the last part of every chapter of the book I'm writing, because whatever I'm writing about all comes down to, are we still here? And, you know, as this goes, story goes forward and, and what's that look like? It's very, very much more present. It was present in my research and writing, but it's much, much more so now. And then I, I just stay probably more open than I might have been to where I can contribute on a broader level. Well, I've actually been invited to join the Dutch team to help market the Dutch version of the Carbon Albanac. So that's something I'm, I'm looking forward to jumping into to get my hands dirty on a more local level. So I'm I'm just investigating where to put my particular skills to use on a on a local level, and that's that's one of the things that now just came up, yeah, and open to other opportunities. I am going to say that the Dutch team is incredibly inspiring. I think you have the first international version coming out. Yep. Copy on the way to the king. Yep. <laughs> There's going to be some big changes coming from the Netherlands, isn't there? 
I, I hope so. Yeah. And I have to get, give credit to Michel Poro, who is behind all of that, uh, mm-hmm. all of those initiatives and ideas that, that have come from him. And he's doing amazing work. From your corner of the world, I'm so excited to see what happens. And Teresa, how about you? What are you going to take forward from this project? Just a more openness to everything I do. As, as an artist, the supplies I use around the, the care and maintenance of my home, just a, a, an openness and, and look at the back of the bottle. I've always been a anti-plastics, but even more so just what went into making things and just trying to start conversations without seeming like I'm uh, reprimanding. So that that's the real kind of threshold. That's the the electrified line, if you will. You don't want to seem like you're reprimanding. You want to come softly about a strong subject. Ho- hopefully, I'll gain my voice and knowledge so I can really speak to it better than I can today. Just better and better. That's what I'm hoping to gain. All of you have been such gentle and 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 dear voices you know when you when you're immersed in a in a community of strangers all mm-hmm. of a sudden certain voices speak to you in a way that comforts you and opens you up a little more and you've all done that and i want to thank you for that you've been listening to the carbon almanac collective This podcast is part of the Carbon Almanac Podcast Network. For more information, to join the movement, and to order your copy of the Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Subscribe and join us next time to get more insights from regular people mobilizing to help the world fight the climate emergency.